Welcome to the St. Matt's 6pm podcast, where you can listen to sermons from our evening service. The Old Testament reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The New Testament reading is from 1 Timothy, uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I urge then, first of all, The petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. Therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing, I also want the women to dress modestly, with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. Thank you, Georgia. Evening, everyone. Good to see you. Uh, Glad you could be here tonight. Um, Before I get started on this, uh, hard thing to talk about. I want to share with you something that's really easy to talk about. Uh, a number of people, some who are here tonight, have been at Kick this weekend, uh, and 
uh, incredibly excitingly, a number of young people who are at Kick, again, some of whom are here, uh, committed themselves again to Jesus or committed themselves for the first time to Jesus. And yeah, it's just super exciting. And uh, we want you to know if you are here or if you're not, pass this on to your friends, that we trust that this will be a place that enables you to grow as followers of Jesus for the rest of your life. We're super excited. My heart was moved when I received news about that. I've shared it with congregations across the day. They've been moved as well. And so we just want you to know we're right with you. We're so excited about what Jesus is doing in your life and we trust that this will be a really supportive community for you for the rest of your days. Uh, So great news, eh? What a a thing to start with. Uh, Tonight we are looking at this uh, difficult issue of gender roles in the church, men, women and ministry. And it's a hard thing to talk about because over time it has caused much hurt. And over time it's become... Uh, the subject of much division in churches. And so it's a difficult thing for us to talk about. Yet it has a practical impact on our life together. And so we need to talk about it. What is important, I think, at the end of the day, isn't so much what view you come to as you think about the texts, but that when we come to a view in dealing with issues like this that are disputable, that we show that Christ matters more than the matter in dispute by being biblically and relationally generous as a community. I'm going to unpack that a little bit as we go, but before we do, let me pray. Lord God, we pray that you'll give us humility and grace as we come to your word and as we relate to others on matters that are disputable. May Jesus be glorified in all and through all. Amen. Now, I'm going to cover a whole lot of stuff tonight and I'm going to skim over the top. We've got a Q&A, so there we might be able to go a bit deeper into a couple of things. But just so you know, my first draft of this message was about twice the length of my final draft. Stuff just had to get cut out. There's so much more to say on this issue. But I want us to start by considering two things that I think are really important before we get to scripture. And the first one is what's called theological method, how we go about the process of interpreting the Bible. And this is important just to be honest about, I think, so that you know what my method is as I've approached this particular issue. And the first thing I want to say about theological method is that the method that I choose to use prioritises what's called biblical theology. Now, that is uh, looking at the unfolding story of God from Genesis through to Revelation and allowing that entire unfolding story to inform any particular verse in the Bible, any particular passage in the Bible, to think about the big picture and then come down to the particular verse. I'm going to use tonight the fifth act framework, which I've used before with you on a couple of other issues, which is a biblical theology framework. If you're not familiar with it, you'll see what I mean when we get there. But the second thing is that when it comes to passages like uh, the one that Georgia read to us from 1 Timothy chapter 2, and particularly a couple of verses in that passage, which is 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 12, is one of the most academically debated verses of all of Scripture, Right, that's what we're talking about tonight. When we come to matters like that and, and another passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 
it's important for us to understand that there's this another, another theological method at work. And this method is that verses with greater clarity have more priority when it comes to interpretation than those with less clarity. So we use the greater clarity verses to help us understand those with less clarity. Okay? Uh, so that's just putting my theological method on the table so you kind of know that's my framework to start with. The second thing before we get to scripture is what's called a theological triage. Now, if you've been to an emergency department, you get what triage is, right? And you get that it doesn't really matter uh, what the nurse says, whatever issue you've gone in, that's the most important, yes? But uh, the triage nurse, their job is to actually determine what issues are life-threatening. Uh, you'll see it come up on a table here, what issues are life-threatening, uh, what issues have lower priority, and then to get the patients treated in that order, okay? It, it makes lots of sense. And so your paper cut might have to wait a little while, uh, particularly if there's a car accident that's happened around the corner. Now, we can do the same thing theologically and think about where's this is the issue that we're talking about? How do we triage it? Is it an issue that is up the top there that's essential to Christian faith? If so, then it's a high-ranking issue. Now, what would those issues be? I would suggest that those are issues that are essential to Christian faith and doctrine, the sorts of things that we might express in a creed. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed uh, are two examples of that. Those are the sorts of things that are rank one. Rank two uh, is uh, urgent, uh, things that are critical to our church health, and then we go to important and unimportant. This particular issue, I think, triages in rank two or rank three. It's not a rank one issue. It's not critical to our faith. It's not essential about how we're saved. It isn't a doctrine like that. Depending on a few things, it's either two or three. That's how I triage it and I just want to be upfront about that. But the other important thing about triage is that our behaviour needs to match the way things are triaged. It's no point that uh, if you go to the emergency department and the nurse triages your paper cut as down at number four, but then she then puts you in front of the person who's got a life-threatening injury, that's pointless, right? And the same theologically, if we raise things up the triage level, it gives them more heat than what they deserve. And so uh, when it comes to this matter, I trust that our behaviour, whatever our view, will show that Christ matters more than the disputable matter by being biblically and relationally generous to others. And St Matt's has a history of showing this generosity. Uh, St Matt's has wrestled with this issue over years and years and from what I understand of its history, has been gracious towards other people who have different views and for that I am really, really grateful. And there's a sense in which, though some might not uh, see this, there's a sense in which our diocese, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, is also relationally generous on this issue, allowing a variety of viewpoints. And that was even communicated to the synod of our diocese in the last couple of weeks uh, at our synod meeting, where the Archbishop said, I have not adop adopted any practice contrary to that now long endorsed by Synod 
that the rector of a parish is at liberty to invite suitably authorised, gifted and godly men and women to preach if he chooses. That's the position of our diocese and it gives, it's a generous position saying it may be that you think that women shouldn't preach, it may be that you think they are, but we can hold both of those in the way that we do our life together. So how do we arrive at that sort of biblical generosity when the surface reading of 1 Timothy 2 seems to prohibit women from teaching in the church? what are called the silencing passages by some. Well, let's go to the fifth act framework and work our way through and see what we discover. We start with the first act, the act of creation. And we see in the act of creation in Genesis chapter, chapter 1, verse 27, that Georgia also read to us tonight, that God creates humans in his own image, male and female. Both men and women are the complete image bearers of God, not partial image bearers, but complete image bearers. In verse 28 of Genesis chapter 1, male and female are told to fill the earth and subdue it, that is to rule over the the earth that God has created. And so ruling over the earth from the very start, ruling over God's world under God is a matter for both genders. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the the woman is described as a helper for the man. Now, sometimes we think the word helper implies some sort of submission. But if we look at that word, that word is also used of God himself in Scripture. God is our helper. Being a helper is about mutuality, about working together in partnership not about being less than or submissive to. So the Bible starts with this picture of men and women working together in partnership to rule over creation under God to see creation flourish. But when we get to Act 2, the act of the fall or uncreation, that all changes. Now, a lot changes here, uh, most significantly the relationship between humans and God, but for our particular interest in this topic, both the man and the woman are held responsible for eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the result of what they have done is a break in the relationship between the man and the woman, and we see that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. The fall, sin, has distorted the mutuality that was in creation's design and left in its place a power struggle. And for those of you who have been with us through the Genesis series, we've seen that power struggle play out time and time again just throughout Genesis. And as you continue in the Bible story, you see that power struggle at work as well, I would put to you. Well, the third act, as I said, I'm skimming over here, is the story of Israel, the rest of the Old Testament, effectively. And in it, we observe men ruling well and men ruling not so well. But it's also not only men that are seen to be the rulers. 
in Judges chapter 4, we're introduced to Deborah. Deborah is a leader or a judge in her time, ruling over Israel with spiritual authority. And really interestingly, the Bible doesn't condemn her for doing that, nor does it condemn her husband for allowing her to do that. Rather, it honours her. She is an example of a woman in God-appointed leadership instructing her nation. Well, moving on, the fourth act is the time of Jesus. And we know, uh, fairly common knowledge, that Jesus chooses 12 men as his first and closest disciples. Yet he also constantly treats women in a really countercultural way, lifting up their value. The story of Mary and Martha is one such story that shows this. In it, we see Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, it's important to understand that this isn't just like when a guest comes into your house and you want to go and and listen to them. It's actually so much more than that. For Mary to sit at the feet of Jesus in that culture is for Mary to posture herself as an apprentice of this teacher, Jesus. That's what she's indicating by sitting at his feet. And what's Jesus do? Martha wants her to help with the preparations. But Jesus commends Mary and allows her to stay in that posture. At the end of the Gospels, we get to the story of the resurrection. And in Matthew chapter 28, we find both the angel and Jesus himself instructing two women to go and tell the men that Jesus has risen from the dead. Now, you might think that's just coincidence, but it strikes me to be a very intentional thing that Jesus does. If it was such a big issue that women should remain silent in the church, why would Jesus appear to women when he could have appeared first to men and asked them to convey that message? Jesus entrusted the proclamation of his resurrection. The thing that Paul goes on to tell us is the thing that without our whole faith is a waste of time, is futile. He entrusts that message to these two women. Well, now we can move on to the fifth act, which includes the early church and also us, the continuing church, while we wait for the final act, which is the return of Jesus and eternity that will come. Now, just out of interest for me, because I have a particular theory here, just give me a show of hands if you've ever heard Romans chapter 16 preached on. There's a couple of hands. I have this theory that we don't preach much on Romans 16. I reckon most of you who have been coming to church for a while would have heard a sermon on Romans at some point or one part of Romans, but not Romans 16. The reason why is because it's a list of greetings, right? And it's just kind of like preaching a genealogy in one sense, like what's in there? But there's actually things there that are really instructive for us, particularly on this particular issue. First of all, in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, you can see there, that, uh, uh, that, in, that commends Phoebe, who's a deacon 
Now, a deacon serves with the overseers in the church and Phoebe was most likely the deacon that took the message of Romans to Rome on Paul's behalf. Now, not only was she the one responsible for transporting it, but in those days she also would have been the one who read it to the Church of Rome. So think about this great book of Romans, if you are familiar with it. It's read first in the church by this woman named Phoebe. And not only would she have read it, transported it and read it, but if there was any clarification that needed to come, on Paul's behalf, she would answer that. She would explain that if there were any points of clarification that were needed. That's Phoebe. A few verses later, in uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 7, we're introduced to Junia. Junia appears to be a female apostle and an outstanding one at that. Well, what, what are all these, all these uh, biblical examples for? I think, really, it just means that they, that needs to inform our thinking when we come to these hard-to-understand passages in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 14. You can see them on the screen. And again, I want to urge whatever view you get to, and I'll disclose some of mine in a minute, that we have relational generosity in this. The instruction for women to be silent in 1 Corinthians 14, just to dive into that for a moment, comes three chapters after Paul has clearly stated that women in that church are prophesying in public mixed congregations. Fascinating. Whatever Paul means in 1 Corinthians 14, unless he's lost his mind in the space of three chapters, he can't possibly mean that women can never speak in the public environment. Because three chapters earlier, he endorsed them prophesying in the public environment. We need to be careful about how we interpret things. When we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, to say the least, it is complex. I've already said that uh, this passage contains one of the most academically debated verses in Scripture. And we need to consider a few things. Firstly, we need to ask ourselves how much of this is cultural versus transcultural. That is, how much of this is for a, a specific issue for a specific group of people in a specific time, that is cultural, or how much of it's transcultural, that is, it goes across culturals, cultures for all time and is true in all times and places. And some would say that because Paul ties the role of women to the doctrine of creation in this passage, it therefore is for all time. But we need to be a little bit careful because Paul is also tying to the doctrine of creation the issue of head coverings and hair length for women and men. And as I look around, it's clear that we don't believe that's a transcultural thing. So we've got to be careful about how we interpret the rest. Consistency is important. Secondly, as we come to this passage, uh, is this very contentious verse in chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, there are so many issues here. Let me just run through three of them. 
First, I do not permit. I do not permit is a statement that's in the present tense and it's not a command. It's a statement of Paul's current practice. Now, to be fair, he could be anticipating that that current practice is a practice that continues in all congregations for all time. He could be. But if he really wanted that, he could have written it grammatically different to make that very, very clear. It's important for us that we don't give this verse more force than what Paul is giving it himself. And that requires careful understanding of almost every word in this particular verse. When we come to the word teach, it is also unclear, though it's certainly more narrow than how we would use the word teach in its very broad sense. And possibly it's referring to the establishing of apostolic doctrine. That is what he might might be prohibiting women from doing. But again, it's unclear. And the third thing that is equally unclear is the phrase, assume authority. This is the only use of this particular Greek word in the New Testament. And so it means we have nothing to compare it with, which is one of the ways that we understand what a word means. It's possible that what Paul is prohibiting is women from usurping authority, taking it when it's not given to them, of which he would have also told men not to do if they'd been in the practice of doing that. Alternatively, it could refer to what's known as the authoritative teaching office. Now, what's the authoritative teaching office? It could be that Paul's referring to the apostles who had this incredible uh, task at the beginning of the church to establish doctrine for the church, to put together what we now call the New Testament. It could be that that is the authoritative teaching office. It could be, as the Diocese of Sydney interprets it, that it's the office that belongs to the senior minister in any particular church. So in our church, it's part of my responsibility is to make sure that the doctrines that are taught in here, from here, are true and accurate. And that's part of the responsibility of a senior minister in every environment. Or it could be that it's the responsibility that every man carries, whether in a church environment or in his family. Again, we just don't really know what it is. And so we want to be careful that we don't give more force than what Paul's doing and that we acknowledge the various interpretations that are able to come from this particular verse. Well, as we finish up, let me finish with a few practical implications for us here at St. Matt's. But again, I want to urge us, whatever view you come to in this, and you might start with one and come to another in years to come as well, that you be relationally generous with others who hold a different view. Firstly, I want to stress that whatever your view on the application of these verses, they are never, ever an excuse for abuse. There is no biblical justification for the abuse of women, or of men for that matter. But sometimes, or when these verses have been used in that way, there is no biblical warrant 
And I would posit that such behaviour is unchristian, counter to the gospel of Jesus. And I want to add into that, maybe with a lower level of force, but even joking at a woman's expense about these things is incredibly unhelpful. And I would urge us not to do it. Whatever our view, wherever we see abuse, we must call it out. Wherever we see the misuse of scripture that leads to abuse, we must call it out. Scripture is designed that all people might flourish in Jesus for the good of all. Second, I believe that scripture allows suitably trained and qualified men or women, suitably trained and qualified men or women, to lead and preach, uh, or preach and or preach, in a mixed congregation. There have been and will be occasions where women lead and preach here at St Matt's. We've had some in this congregation even this year. I'm asking for us to be relationally generous in the way that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 14. Romans 14 is actually a great chapter. This is some of the stuff that landed on the cutting room floor to think about how to deal with each other with disputable matters. Paul urges us in verse 19 and 20 to make every effort to live peacefully, not destroying the work of God for the sake of food, which was the disputable matter in his day, or might I add, for the sake of who preaches. Likewise, I will make every effort to do what leads to peace, acknowledging that within our congregations, There is a variety of views, in fact, probably the whole spectrum of views within our congregations. And acknowledging that some, and not just males, for some it's an issue of conscience that would prevent them from sitting under a a woman preaching, I will make every effort to ensure that where there is a woman preaching, there's at least one service on a Sunday where a male will preach. That's just me trying to be relationally generous to our broader congregation. Finally, and this matters most of all, our mission to the world is far too important to make this a major issue wherever you sit on the spectrum. I've been able to share with you tonight what Jesus has done in the lives of young people over the course of this weekend. And I trust and pray that as you go from here, I know that you'll think about some of these things that we've talked about, and that's good. And I know that you want to talk with other people, and that's good too. But I trust that part of our conversation, maybe the biggest part of it, is praising Jesus for the changed, transformed lives that he has been at work in over the course of this week. Our mission matters more than these issues. Our mission is why we have those rank one issues about what the gospel is because our job is to convey the gospel to the world, not for them to hear all our arguments about rank two or rank three issues. When we argue about such things so loudly that it's what the world around us hears, they laugh at us. They don't get it. 
They're like, what are you guys fighting over that for all the time? But when we can hold the tension, what they see and witness and experience is actually a taste of the peace that only Jesus can bring to us in disputable matters. And so if we're going to be laughed at by a watching world, let's be laughed at because we're known to be a community for believing that a guy who was crucified on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago did so to take the penalty and the punishment for our sin and for their sin. If we're going to be laughed at, let's be laughed at for that. Or if we're going to be laughed at and mocked, let's be mocked for believing that that same guy rose from the dead to give us hope now and hope for all eternity. And if we're going to be laughed and mocked at, let's let that happen because we believe that same guy who was crucified and rose actually isn't any ordinary guy, but was God the Son come into the world out of love for the world to show the world the extent of his love and to provide for them forgiveness of sin and hope for eternal life. Let's be laughed at because we believe that he, Jesus, is God the Son in the flesh coming to the world for our good. That's a crazy thing to believe. Let's be laughed at for that. And let's ensure that Jesus matters more than disputable matters by forming our opinion on these matters, but then being biblically and relationally generous with others for the good and glory of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for Jesus. And while we need to come to a mind on these matters that are disputable, we we thank you so much for the gospel and for all that is clear and without doubt in Scripture. And we pray that as a church our eyes will be so focused on that which you've called us to, that as we talk and come to a mind on these disputable matters, we won't let them raise up to be big issues, but rather we'll be focused on the thing that you've called us to, being your disciples, to engage our world with grace and truth that the world might know Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. St. Matt's West Penn Hills 6pm congregation is a collection of people who want to be changed by Jesus to have a deeper connection with God, deeper community with one another, and deeper concern for our world. We'd love you to join us on a Sunday soon. For all the details, check out our website at stmats.org.au and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a sermon.